I am uncomfortably old school. While I don't self-identify as being part of the so-called old school renaissance, my habits and sensibilities have much in common with the early days of that movement. But I am not truly part of the OSR, because the games I enjoy are too complex and detailed for the members of that movement. So where do I fit? I suspect I've fallen between the cracks of the role-playing game community. Hey, it's Che, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Che's gonna bring me back Give me a plus one to attack Oh, 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 I want to come back to the dice Whoa, oh, 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 I think I need some good advice I need a roleplay rescue, oh yeah I need a roleplay rescue, oh yeah, oh yeah Hello rescuers, welcome back to the podcast about rediscovering our lost roleplaying hobby the OSR community is celebrating OSR October, and I've been hearing several fellow podcasters make reference to the now decades-old question, what is the OSR? To me, the old-school renaissance was a movement I became aware of around the time I fell out of the 3rd edition D&D hobby. I was drawn towards the early writings of Matt Finch in particular, the classic quick primer for old-school gaming being the touchstone and some of the games of the period after Osric tested the waters of the open gaming license and became the first retro clone. I read Osric, discovered Castles and Crusades, played Labyrinth Lord, and tried out Swords and Wizardry. It was a rediscovery of my early hobby years, and I found myself drawn towards that aesthetic. The arrival of 4th edition D&D, and the frankly boring experiences we had with it around 2008, cemented my move, for a while, away from modern games, and towards retro clones. But then... I found I didn't enjoy the old-school methodology quite as much as I expected. There are some strange contradictions and assertions made that jar with my gaming experience, and I felt increasingly that I was somehow a bad-wrong dungeon master because I enjoyed games with more rules. Eventually, I was encountering OSR gamers who were insisting that the only true role-playing game is the one with less than one page of rules and a one-page dungeon map and sketchy key, and then a willingness to improvise all of the rest. It was a recipe for me, for stress, anxiety, feeling like a failure, and ultimately it almost killed my love of the hobby. I am undoubtedly old school in my sensibilities, but the movement does not approve of my methodology. The games I play are overly complex and too full of rules. My rejection of the belief that D&D, as the original RPG, is the best and most pure expression of role-playing, well, that marks me as an outsider. In the end, I felt that the OSR label wasn't a badge I was willing to be labelled with. I have an uncomfortable relationship with the old school, but I am also most definitely not in any of the other camps. I am simply me. I am my own self, my own type of GM and player. Flawed, fumbling, curious and exploring, trying to find my place in the community of role players who don't seem to recognise that the badges are no longer helping some of us to enjoy the hobby. This is Season 11, Episode 14, Uncomfortably Old School. Old school means old-fashioned or traditional. 
It's a word that indicates someone who adheres to or conforms with an earlier style. In role-playing terms, it's usually broadly defined as being a descriptor for people who play games pre-year 2000. Here's the words of Matt Fincher's opening paragraph in the primer I mentioned earlier. Quote, This booklet is an introduction to old-school gaming, designed especially for anyone who started playing fantasy role-playing games after, say, the year 2000. But it's also for longer-time players who have slowly shifted over to modern styles of role-playing over the years. End quote. Why year 2000? Probably because that was the year D&D 3rd Edition was released by Wizards of the Coast, a massive explosion of excitement in sales, bringing in thousands of new gamers to the role-playing hobby, which also sharply divided the community of previous D&D players into those who modernised and went with 3rd Edition, and those who stayed with 2nd, 1st or even earlier editions. At the time, I was returning to the hobby in an actual practical sense, and my group bought into D&D 3rd Edition. We played it for, well, years, eventually stopping completely only when the 4th edition arrived in 2008. For me, the old school renaissance hit my radar in around about 2005 via forums and blogs. In 2008, Matt Fincher's primer became my conversion moment. From then forward, I saw myself as an old school DM. Well, at least until 2018, when I started this podcast. Actually, when I think about it, it was 2019 before I began to question my credentials as I listened to more and more Anchor podcasts from the old-school Anchorites. I quickly realised I did not, in fact, quite fit in. Whenever OSR gamers describe the aesthetic and approach of the old-school, they generally create a dichotomy between old-school rule systems and the rules of more modern games. I think this is generally a false dichotomy and a bit of an illusion which leads to other fallacies of thinking, such as insisting that written down rules are not as important as the dynamic fiat of the GM. Often it's characterised by the character sheet of a modern game having way more numbers and details and abilities than that of the old school game. My problem with this dichotomy is simple. I think the old school is an approach to game mastering not a style of rules design. Where I diverge with the OSR is right at the front gate, because I believe most sets of rules can be played in an old-school style. Not all, certainly, but most. At least, most of the games that are focused on role-playing as an approach to narrative gaming. The first clue I got to this difference was when I read words from N. Robin Crosby's comments in Harn World, which I think are well worth sharing. Quote, Fantasy role-playing is a trinity of three vital elements. Game mastering, rules, and environment. The first needs a little explanation. Even the best environment and rules will not survive the misjudgments of a bad GM, but they can make a talented rookie shine. Rules are no more than a mechanical set of guidelines and attempt to formulate common sense into some pretty weird stuff. He then goes on to describe environment, such as the world of Han, as what I would call the game world. Personally, having discussed this at length with Daniel Jones as part of our exploration of Otherworld Immersion as a goal at the table, I prefer to substitute game mastering with the word methodology. In other words, there is a difference between the rules of the game as written and the methodology used to actually implement those rules at the table. Together with the environment of the game world, role-playing games come to life. Think about how D&D was received by the community of early gamers. 
it was a baseline, a starting point, from which a thousand or more game masters jumped off and ran their own games. Each one both played in their own style, which I call methodology, and they tweaked or even wrote their own alternative version of the rules. Tunnels and Trolls, as an example, was a totally different rule set with a very different methodology to Gygax and Arneson. It's still a role-playing game. It's not the rule books that are the issue. It's the methodology we deploy at the table that actually counts. What makes me old school is my methodology. Unfortunately, because I don't play with the OSR's idea of the right rule set, I'm not one of the gang. It's my belief that this creates division where none needs to exist. Of course, I will caveat my claim of division with highlighting this. Not all the OSR gamers hold this misunderstanding. Many realise that old school is a methodology and would simply assert that some sets of rules are perhaps better adapted to that methodology. And with this point, I can agree. At least, partly. So what's this old school methodology that I'm referring to? Let's turn back to the old school primer for some help. There are four so-called Zen moments for the OSR in 2008. Rulings, not rules. Player skill, not character abilities. Heroic, not superhero. Forget game balance. Let's begin with rulings, not rules. Quote, Most of the time in old school gaming you don't use a rule. You make a ruling. It's easy to understand that sentence, but it takes a flash of insight to really get it. The players can describe any action without needing to look at a character sheet to see if they can do it. The referee, in turn, uses common sense to decide what happens or rolls a die if he thinks there's some random element involved, and then the game moves on. This is why characters have so few numbers on the character sheet and why they have so few specified abilities. Many of the things that are die roll challenges in modern gaming, disarming a trap for example, are handled by observation, thinking and experimentation in old style games. Getting through obstacles is more hands-on than you're probably used to. Rules are a resource for the referee, not for the players. Players use observation and description as their tools and resources. Rules are for the referee only. End quote. I believe I'm old school when I insist that the rules are for the Game Master, not for the players. Like Eisen with his vow, I don't want to put the rules in front of the players. But I don't really buy in to the idea that loosely defined character sheets are better. From experience, making rulings on the fly with minimal reference to rules has led to inconsistency and even upset players. The rules provide me, as GM, with a firm reference point to describe the consequences of actions taken in the game world. If the next time you meet that trap it works differently, you would rightly feel hard done by if the resolution you used last time didn't work that way again. Thus, when I make a ruling, I write it down, and it becomes a rule in my game. Rulings, at least for me, are the moments when we interpret the rules within the context of the game. I recently heard an old schooler assert that modern games try to have a rule for everything and inflexibly apply those rules to every situation. This would simply be poor methodology, in my view. Inflexibility is foolish because, first, no set of rules can cover every eventuality and every situation has its own circumstances. So, for example, I might apply modifiers to a skill role to account for those circumstances. 
Or sometimes I might decide the action simply works without the need to test the skill. My point is that the rules exist for me as Game Master to use as a set of tools to bring to life the environment of the game world. It doesn't matter if I'm playing with just one descriptive note for the character or a multi-page detailed character sheet. The rules are a tool for me to adjudicate, nothing more. The method is to make a ruling in each situation based upon the rules. Personally, I find detailed rules take the pressure off me because I don't have to make up new rules and write them down quite so often. I have a good head for rules, remembering details with relative ease. Your mileage will almost certainly vary. Player skill, not character abilities, says the old school. Quote, original D&D and Swords and Wizardry are games of skill in a few areas where modern games just rely on the character sheet. You don't have a spot check to let you notice hidden traps and levers. You don't have a bluff check to let you automatically fool a suspicious city guardsman. And you don't have a sense motive check to tell you when someone's lying to your character. You have to tell the referee when you're looking for traps and what buttons you're pushing. You have to tell the referee whatever tall tale you're trying to get the city guardsman to believe. You have to decide for yourself if someone's lying to your character or telling the truth. In a zero E game, you are always asking questions, telling the referee exactly what your character is looking at and experimenting with things. Die rolls are much less frequent than in modern games. End quote. Hmm. This, I think, is a question of GM fiat versus making a die roll. It's a methodological question. Games without abilities you can roll against force either an improvised die roll or the use of GM fiat. Games with skills, for example, they give you the choice. GM fiat means that the referee just makes a decision either way, yes or no, you can do that, or whatever the outcome they're going to describe is going to be. To the letter of the old school primer, this is the default approach for the old school referee. But I don't think you need to rely so heavily on GM Fiat to have player skill lead over character ability. I prefer the methodology of the Alexandrian in his essay, The Art of Rulings. Quote, With all that being said, my general approach to making rulings as a GM basically looks like this. Passive observation of the world is automatically triggered. Player expertise activates character expertise. Player expertise can trump character expertise. End quote. Stuff that the character would automatically know from observation is simply described. I might secretly roll against skills for observation to help me decide if subtle or less obvious clues are detected, but generally I prefer to note that the highly observant character will notice more than the less observant character. Thus, elven eyes see things human eyes might not, for example. But that's not the interesting stuff. The old school teaches that the player's skill must be deployed to discover non-obvious things. Thus, you can't just say, I check the chest for traps. You must interact with the chest and tell us exactly how you're going to detect those tripwires, poison needles and gas traps. If you don't have engineering expertise as a player, then you will also fail to detect the traps because you really can't tell the referee the moves that you'll make, at least not convincingly. Personally, I'm actually quite happy with players who activate their character expertise. Quote, The characters don't play themselves. With the exception of purely passive observation of the game world, players have to call for an action which requires a skill check in order for the skill to be activated. End quote. In other words, a player who says they are searching for traps on the chest can activate their character's skill, and I will roll for it. 
And that's because, not being an engineer, I don't have a clue how to detect a gas trap in a chest, but the character, well, they have this expertise. In the same way that I don't really know how to swing a sword for effect, I don't ask the player to specifically describe the precise stance when activating their character's combat skills, so I'm not doing it for everything else as well. Do I prefer description? Of course. I encourage it with a very simple question. How do you do that? My methodology is to ask not just for what the action is going to be, but also for the approach the character will try, because I believe that the approach matters. There's a difference in trying to bribe a guard or trying to persuade a guard, for example. Thus, coming back to the chest, I'm going to check the chest for traps by running my hands and eyes over the exterior, and that is going to benefit detection of external tripwires and poisoned pins and such things, but perhaps it wouldn't help with detecting the internal gas trap. I would apply this difference as a die roll modifier most of the time. Quote, on the other hand, you also don't want to negate meaningful choices by insisting that certain actions must be handed off to the character's expertise. And that's why I say that player expertise can trump character expertise. End quote. Thus, again with the Alexandrians' approach, the player who specifically does tell me exactly how they'll locate the trap, well, they will do so. No role is required because player expertise can trump character expertise. For me, this methodology covers all the bases and means I don't have to lean heavily on GM fiat. When we add my roles behind the screen methodology and invisible character numbers where the GM is holding the sheet, not the player, then you get a pretty old school feel while using some pretty detailed rules. Minimalist rules, they're not necessary to be an old schooler. Heroic, not superhero. Quote, old school games have a human-sized scale, not super-powered scale. At first level, adventurers are barely more capable than a regular person. They live by their wits. End quote. Right, putting aside the assumption that level-based character progression is the only way to play, I would agree with this sentiment. In fact, heroic is a descriptor that I would question. Few old-school D&D characters are heroic, being much more like reavers and vagabonds than paragons of virtue. I prefer the idea of slightly above-average folk, grounded, realistic characters as the ideal starting point. For me, it's not about gaining levels or ability increases as much as it's about exploring the world, but I do prefer a lower-powered baseline. Does this make me old-school? Well, I think so. Lastly, we are told to forget game balance. Quote, The old-style campaign is with fantasy worlds, with all its perils, contradictions and surprises. It's not a game setting which somehow always produces challenges of just the right difficulty for the party's level of experience. The party has no right only to encounter monsters they can defeat, no right only to encounter traps they can disarm, no right to invoke a particular rule from the books, and no right to a die roll in every particular circumstance. This sort of situation isn't a mistake in the rules. Game balance just isn't terribly important in old-style gaming. End quote. With this, I agree wholeheartedly. I recently had a player speculate that because a highly skilled NPC had temporarily joined the party, perhaps this would raise the average power of the group and therefore lead me to add tougher monsters to the adventure. This is not true in my games. My worlds are sandboxes with challenges of various levels of difficulty, for want of a better phrase, seeded all across the landscape. 
Rumours and other clues offer players choices to make. If they choose to enter the dragon's lair, for example, as newly created characters, so be it. They will likely all die. But it's their choice to go, and I'm not going to pretend to balance the game. It's an impossible goal to even try to create game balance, in my view, and way more enjoyable when we don't. So here then, I think I'm undeniably old school. So what is it that makes me so uncomfortable with the label? Old school play is typically presented as pre-third edition Dungeons and Dragons or some retro clone or other modified version of the basic template formed around the classic six D&D attributes, classes and races and basically rolling polyhedral dice. I don't think as highly of the older D&D editions as many of my fellow gamers, thus I immediately feel like an outsider. OSR products are largely derivative of 1970s and 1980s D&D with fewer folk using the second edition material. I play Mithras Classic Fantasy, which emulates D&D 1E and 2E, and I play GURPS. Both games are judged as having too many rules to be old school. But, as I said earlier, I don't think that's the issue. Whenever OSR gamers describe the aesthetic and approach of the old school, they generally create a dichotomy between old school rule systems and the rules of more modern games, which, they claim, have too many rules. But as I said before, I think this is a false dichotomy and a bit of an illusion leading to other fallacies of thinking. The big one, for me, is insisting that written-down rules are not as important as the dynamic fiat of the GM. I also dislike abstraction in my rules, so playing D&D, I get a whole bucket load of that. I prefer grounded realism, and an element of verisimilitude in the presentation of the game world, I find that a more grounded, specific rule system based on emulating that realism suits my tastes better. Many of my friends understand this and accept that there is room in old school play for alternatives to D&D, but plenty of OSR fans dismiss my use of GURPS as a symptom of my unhealthily modern approach to play. How dare I use character sheets with skills on them? And horror upon horror, how dare I roll dice to see if a player's declared action succeeds? It sounds like I'm being a bit facetious, but truly, I have been presented with these kinds of astounded responses to my methods of play. And those outside of the OSR who play the regular kind of 5th edition D&D, these guys don't understand why I don't play in the more modern style either, and thus often feel like I end up falling between the binary opposites, which in itself is an illusion created to argue between perceived extremes. What I'm arguing is that there's a spectrum of methodology. I'm arguing that you can be old school but use rules written after 2000 common era, You can even play old school with the heretical third edition that spawned the movement which challenged the so-called modern approach. Some of us play in a kind of blend which embraces the original spirit of the game but also grounds us in a stable set of detailed rules and a methodology that encourages role-playing, being in character and making decisions in character, from role-playing where we just roll the dice, stare at our character sheets and forget that we can have our characters do anything within the bounds of the world's own fantastic reality. But hey, I don't know. I mean, in the end, I just don't really think the labels are very useful. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again next time. As you know, I love to hear from you. So if you've got a question or comment, then please hop over to speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue, where you can leave a 90-second message. I'll put the link in the show notes. 
Well, here's a few messages about recent episodes. AJ Jason here. Just listened to episode 1112, Roleplay Rescue. I thought it was a great call-in. I think it was a positive call-in. I think everybody called in with good comments and constructive things to help folks out. So, well, for the most part. <laughs> so, really enjoying it. Looking forward to your next episode. And my dog is asking for my attention. So I will talk to you later. Jay, Evil Jeff. Just listen to the Tiny Prep podcast and thank you for that information uh, i remember you've spoken about it several times but in this one where you go into more detail how you're using it uh, i was letting my mind wander figuring out how i could possibly use that if i need to do that a little bit to tweak things and while i'm not as much into prepping at this moment um, it's more of being in that habit of making sure that i'm doing all the things covering all the bases I need to cover uh, with whatever gaming I'm doing, whether it is uh, play by post, um, prepping uh, or my prep for the Mythic Britain game. So, yeah, it was uh, good to hear that and hear you using it and allow me to wander through the mindscape to figure out exactly where I'm going to start inserting that. So I can keep things on track, you know, that's, that's really what it boils down to not letting something slip through the cracks. All right. Be good. And we'll see you on the flip side. Big thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks to Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast and Evil Jeff from Minions and Musings for the call-ins today. Thanks also to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. And let's not forget John from Tale of the Manticore who made the show music. Thanks, John. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. Game on. Okay, I had to pause episode 1113 about four minutes in to say, I do want to hear your thoughts on well-designed, modern, and sci-fi worlds. Please share those with us as well. And I haven't listened to the episode yet, and I don't want to cause any problems, but if Palladium Fantasy doesn't get mentioned during this episode, I'll I'll just be a little bit heartbroken. I'll get over it, though, because everybody has different tastes. Okay, back to listening.